0: Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we are back with you to talk about movies. How's it going, Danielle?
2: Millie, I I don't even want to tell you how I'm doing because we have a guest so incredible that I just want to shut up immediately. I just want to shut up, which is great for podcasting to not want to speak.
0: Yeah, we have zero time to dilly-dally.
2: Let's just
0: get to it. So we have a mailbag. Another epic email from one of our listeners, and we thank everybody who writes in. This one again rose to the occasion, and we found somebody who is maybe one of one of the funniest people ever. I'm just gonna say that. I mean, that's a a huge statement, but I'm saying it.
2: Oh, that is not hyperbole. It is not hype. This is a person who genuinely never fails to make me laugh. Yeah. Every single time I watch. Anything that they have produced, I cannot wait. I feel like, should we just introduce our guests and then read the question? Hell yes. Let's go. Okay. Y'all, we are talking to someone who has a ghost living inside of his tooth. He (laughs) schooled all of us and just really, truly read us all for filth about how we're all paying for for French fries that we charge to our student loans in 1995, (laughs) and we're still paying for those French fries. (laughs) If you don't understand what the word Shamala Hamala means, I can't help you, and you should go find out immediately, because our guest is none other than stand-up comedian Kevin James Thornton. How are you? I'm just great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited Uh, to be here. Oh my god. We are such huge fans. I, yeah. I, I'm true. I'm not even kidding. You genuinely make me laugh all the time, and you are also from the '90s, just like us. I am from the '90s. <laughs> I
1: came here in a I weird time machine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. we. I don't think we've we've ever been this excited. By the way, as Uh-oh. as, a, as a, we were like, we almost couldn't believe that you said yes. <laughs> so we were like, oh my god! It's like an actual fucking superstar
2: on our podcast, no. and we were very excited. Uh. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, let's talk to him from my dungeon closet. This will be so exciting. <laughs> uh, but you are just so prolifically funny. And I love, love, love that every time I look at your dates, like you're selling out your stand up all over the place. Yeah,
1: it's been a wild dream come true the last two years of my life.
2: Uh, how is it going? How does it feel to be like back on stage and out in the out with people and... Telling Joe, like how does it feel for you to even be bringing this this to a bigger stage? Because you are a stand-up comedian by trade. You do you do a lot. We're going to get into it, but how has it been going for you? I know it's been an overwhelming couple of years. But. It's been it's
1: like I said, it's just been a totally unexpected dream come true. I had sort of retired from stand-up. Um, I, I toured for many years when I was younger, and I just kind of burned myself out. Mm, you know, yeah. it's a it's a difficult road. And um, I, I came back to Nashville where I live and I opened a photography studio and I worked on some film stuff and, uh, and then the pandemic happened and TikTok happened and this avalanche of an audience was suddenly in front of me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had sort of, I, it was a surprise, you know? So it's been a, it's been a wild, unexpected dream come true.
2: Well, I'm just, I'm glad it did come true. I think that it's, it's, also kind of strange, you can't predict anything nowadays, but you especially can't predict or for me anyway, I can't predict success based on apps and audiences because there's so many different ways for people to access work mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And so I just never know like how people are finding or accessing things. So as as an as a middle-aged person who barely can understand and get with TikTok. I can watch videos. I cannot make one to save my life. Yeah. (laughs) I love that you just bridge the generational gap. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're like, it's not that hard, lady. Just like press record. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. You press record, yeah. You press record. I can't do a filter. I can't do a caption. I just, I can't do anything. But it's really lovely that you've been able to to hit so many different types of people. Like when I talk to people about your comedy and we're sending links and we're laughing, it's all people from all walks of life and from all different age groups. Like everyone loves you. I hope you know that. Everyone loves you. It's something I'm slowly... becoming aware of like I I have people
1: tell me like my kids were running around the yard saying Shamala Hamala and I've never shown them your video like how is that possible I'm like am I like permeating the ethos of yes of the world
2: with Shamala Hamala they are speaking in tongues and she better respect (laughs) that her children are straight up speaking in tongues that's you are you're part of the zeitgeist it's great Oh, beautiful. And you also have your own history of, in film, which I think, uh, Millie, you wanna, do you want to ask your questions? I know you had some prepared, so I just want to <laughs> give you the chance because <laughs> you know I'll talk I'm forever.
0: A, I'm a classic preparer. <laughs> uh, but I yeah, I think it's interesting because, yeah, like you said, I mean, you do a lot. I mean, you're doing yeah. these viral videos. You're you're a photographer, uh, a stand-up, obviously. And so, but, you know, for our purposes, this is a film podcast. I just couldn't help but noticed that you had made movies in the past and I've actually seen a couple of things I've seen um the stranger heart series that you did and um and I just think it's awesome like that you're just so like multifaceted and you just have dabbled in a lot and you're really good at everything which is very rare (laughs) right
2: (laughs) yeah you're like a true creative renaissance man it's really wonderful to watch
1: we can't use that word because I can't do anything athletic
2: So, (laughs) do we have to include athleticism (laughs) and renaissance no we make our own rules now that's true oh
0: well but but part of like i think what maybe speaks to your filmmaking and and other things is that you're just such a great storyteller and that's i think part of what people love about you and connect to uh with is just this idea that you're tell you're telling stories about your childhood and about yourself and i mean you know i don't we're all we all seem like we're maybe around the same age, so I think that's kind of where Danielle and I connect with your videos is that it's all just references that we understand, and it's like everybody had that Dukes of Hazard hairbrush, like we all know what that is, and you know it's just that kind of thing. And so, I mean, obviously, your ability to tell stories is what makes you really successful in a bunch of different areas. So, yeah, and, that's and actually, really cool.
1: that's the I mean. Storytelling is such a funny word to me because it makes me think of like someone in a library with a sock puppet. Like, gather around, everybody. Yeah. We're going to have some storytelling. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but that is the, it's all the same thing to me. It honestly is. I mean, even when I, when I thought I was retiring from stand-up stuff is when, I mean, this is like 15 years ago. And I was like, I think I want to make movies. I think I want to write a script and try and make it. And I did. I had just read, his name just flew out of my head. Uh, he He's a guy, he wrote a book about, just make the movie, just make your movie. It was like in the nine. it was a book from the 90s. Oh, what is this so name? Save
2: the Cat? Not Save the Cat.
1: No, he made a movie, oh. uh... Oh gosh, I can't think I of can his see name. the cover. Yeah, yes, <laughs> but yes, I know exactly. What it, you're it, it's, it's real, like <laughs> renegade filmmaking. Like, um,
2: it's got the yeah. strip down the side. I yes, exactly I had just read about. that book,
1: yeah. and it inspired me. I'm like, I'm just going to make my movie, and um, so I, I started reading books about screenwriting, and I bought a camera, and I made my first movie, like with no money, and um, I just sort of kept doing that. I eventually the couple of things that you may have seen I eventually sold to a small distributor that spe- that spe- uh, specifically works with LGBTQ content.
0: Yeah.
1: And honestly, I think I, but again, it's it's just storytelling. In my mind it's not that different than getting on a stage in a comedy club and telling my stories that way. It is totally different, but the essence <laughs> yeah. of it in my head is the same.
2: Yeah. Well, and I I'm I'm also I'm a self-taught um screenwriter as well and having a career in tv writing is always very strange to me because i didn't go to school for it or anything but i think that's also part of the the kind of creative ethos that that a lot of us grew up with in late 80s you know 80s 90s is that just do it so i love the fact that you just kind of were like i want to do it so i will and yes. i'm going to do it for myself robert and rodriguez I- <laughs>
1: robert rodriguez that's the yes writer of
2: that. oh yeah is that yes. right is that his name? That's yep. is it Robert Rodriguez? <laughs> that's the one and and the same thing, like we talk about this sometimes on the on the podcast where there's so many filmmakers who just had a story to tell and figured out how to do it in that medium. So I think you're part of like a grand tradition of of people who are just like, I just you know no, this this is not a world that's set up to tell my story, so I'm just going to do it myself. yeah, by a way, that is isn't that that is such a generation
1: x uh, work ethic, oh my but God. <laughs> right before of course it is yeah right before the pandemic i actually took a class on how to use uh the RE 16 millimeter uh sr3 cameras
2: <gasps> and
1: and i cuz they are actually fairly affordable and mm-hmm. a lot of great f- movies were filmed on those that 16 millimeter format and so it it was a dream to get my hands on one of those cameras and start making movies that way that's what robert rodriguez uses also
2: um nice.
1: And that, oh. that's just kind of been put on pause at the moment because all of, the, of all the wild change in my life. But yeah. I, I still feel like someday I'm going to go back to that and I'm going to make little art movies on 16 millimeter film.
2: I love I that. think, of course you will. Yeah. I mean, I will work for free, just saying, yeah. if you need. <laughs> Hi- hired. <laughs>
0: Listen, I will I will be there opening night for anything. I will be there if you make a video of you going to a sabaro in an airport or <laughs> yes. making art films. So, yeah. uh, I'm a but fan. It's,
2: and it's also it's something that I wonder if if you feel this too that like as as I get older for sure I feel this that I kind of um I appreciate having different ways to tell a story so that I don't ever get too bored with one thing or kind mm-hmm. of put all my eggs in one basket and you know, when you try I love I love that your stand up has had this kind of regenerative spirit and regenerative moment because I think that it's very easy to get burnt out when you're doing one thing for a mm-hmm. long time. And so I just love that you have, again, like this, this way, so many different ways to tell a story and it kind of will help fuel that creativity for a really long time. So that's I can't wait to start seeing short films and and full films uh, mm-hmm. from your universe, <laughs> from the multiverse. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And it's also, it's really, um, it's kind of tied into this this notion of of how we were raised to look at films. It's kind of tied into our question, but I wanted to ask before we get to that, kind of how how do you see your own relationship with film? Like, do you love movies? Do you only watch them at home? Do you love going to the theater? Like, do you, what is your relationship with film as a filmmaker and a viewer?
1: Uh, all of the above with that, but I one of my pre pandemic alone time things that I lost for a second was I love going to see a movie by myself. Um yes. we, we have an art film house here in Nashville called the Bell Court. And mm-hmm. um it is my favorite thing to go alone and watch a really cool film. They still they show things on uh, thirty-five millimeter film, you know, pretty regularly. <sighs> oh. Mm-hmm. I, that's uh, the last thing I saw there was the the last Tarantino film on 35 millimeter, and, right. um, uh, I absolutely I love movies. I lo- I mean I, I love making them. I love talking about them. I love going to see them,
2: and oh, I love yeah. and I love just
1: sitting on the couch and watching some big cheesy Hollywood thing too.
2: Yeah. Yes. We and we do this. We're 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 the same way. Like it takes all kinds. And I I'm just a movie. I'm just a fan of film. I don't. It doesn't always have to be highfalutin. Yeah. I love a good movie. And I think going to the movies by yourself is. It's the one thing that I haven't done since the pandemic, since lockdown has kind of ended. I yeah. still haven't been back to the and I've I, done, I miss I've it done, so yeah. much. Me too. I've done it once, and it's something I used oh. to do
1: weekly. Where did you see when you went? Everything everywhere all
2: at once. Oh, uh, uh, that's a good I'm, one. I wanted to see that in the theater and I missed it. So I yeah. watched it at home. But now I feel like I want to go see Banshee, the Banshees of Inisherin, And I'm trying to like psych myself up to go back to a theater to see it because yeah. I just miss it. Because so much of the movie experience for me is stuffing my face. Yeah. So if I'm like, I could, if my friends are like, just go and wear a mask. You'll be fine. And I'm like, no, because then I can't have like three hot dogs
1: or. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> like, I... That's a big part of the experience for me. <laughs> <laughs> I have,
1: I, I just got the Omicron booster. So I feel invincible.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. See, this is when I should have gone right after I got the booster. (laughs) Have you gone over to a new card yet? Because I just did that the last time I got a booster and it was very exciting. No, but my card is falling apart. They'll give you a new one. I didn't know that. Yeah, because I was like, hey, um, as a classic nerd, I'm really excited to be the best student at getting my booster and I need a new card. And the lady was at CVS was like, Who cares? <laughs> like, take uh, yeah. take your card and get a, go sit down and let this ten year old give you your shot. Who gives a shit? But <laughs> You can just get a, a laminator. Just laminate your
0: yes. cards. Like we home need a, lamination.
1: We need a passport book of vaccines now. Yes.
2: Oh, I would fill it so fast. Yes. I can't stop getting boosted because every time I leave my house, I'm like, I think yeah. I need a booster. You guys are still <laughs> <Yeah>. pretty gross. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Millie, would you like to read our question? We have such a good one from, uh, and again, we, we love and appreciate all questions, but Stephanie cannot stop sending us nonstop hits for emails. And I, <laughs> I will really. infiltrate this family. I will join your family, Stephanie, at some point. Yeah, it's going she sends, to
0: happen. She sends us so many bangers, it's really hard to choose sometimes. Now, okay, so this, there's kind of a lot of different things going on in this question. The, to be honest, the very beginning of it is shocking enough to just talk about. <laughs> um, because I think this concept is wild. But we're, we're gonna obviously get Kevin to weigh in on it. So... This is a question from Stephanie, of course, and it starts like this Dear Millie and Danielle, when my husband was a teenager, a video store in his neighborhood went out of business and
2: his mom
0: bought out their inventory.
2: I mean, tell me everything about this family, please. (laughs) I can't stop saying I love this family. Who is this mom? (laughs) Oh, <laughs> I,
0: I can't even imagine having a mom that would do that. Like, I just can't. Okay. Um. <laughs> because of this, he has seen pretty much every erotic drama-slash-thriller ever made. Cut to present-day us, watching Zandali, It's terrible. And who thought Judge Reinhold in an erotic thriller was a good idea? We wondered what happened to the erotic thriller. They've kind of vanished. If they were to make a comeback, who do you think would be the next erotic thriller king? I don't think Michael Douglas would be up for it. No pun intended. Do you have any erotic thriller favorites? Sorry, that's a lot of questions. Feel free to answer all or one or none. Love you both so much. Stephanie.
2: That is a lot of questions. And (laughs) I I truly, Judge Reinhold was never... And you know that my tastes are extremely—they—they—they they, they vacillate wildly. But Judge Reinhold somehow never made the cut for me when it comes to eroticism.
0: Okay, so I had to Google Sandali. <laughs> I feel like I've heard heard about it. I've never heard of it. The first thing that pops up is Judge Reinhold in this really insane mustache.
2: Mm-mm, I'm already um, out.
0: And Nicolas Cage is also there with a mustache. Okay. So okay.
2: That's cocaine, what cocaine cocaine made a lot of decisions for us and it wasn't always for the best. <laughs> but, but I do love this notion of like first of all erotic thriller. What does that mean to you guys? Cuz if you're horny enough anything can be an erotic thriller. <laughs> do you remember the era of of Cinemax, like late at
1: night Cinemax? Do you think that that trend had something to do with that because things are not as provocative as they maybe were in the 80s, you know? And, like, late at night, you could sneak out into the living room after mom and dad went to bed.
2: Yes. Yes. Turn on cinema. Yes! Yes! <laughs> My Mm -hmm. grandmother used to, I grew up with my grandmother and she used to constantly fall asleep in front of the TV. So if I went downstairs at night, sometimes I'd be like, why is my grandma watching porn? Like, what is going on? Because she just Uh, fell asleep uh, watching a movie on Cinemax and then the magic hour turned over and all of a sudden everyone's naked. I totally remember that. But I wonder if that has
1: something to do with like, maybe that seeped into more, you know, legitimate movies in some way.
2: Yeah, I uh, we used agree. to
0: call it Skinamax. I yes. don't know if you guys called yes. it Skinamax, of course. But there was that is what I think of when I think of erotic thriller, is my experience like of cable TV, Red Shoe Diaries. Remember mm-hmm. the Red Shoe Diaries? Uh, Skinamax, like even HBO, like really late at night, we're always showing these like... Sleazy, like it always took place in like New Orleans or (laughs) Jamaica or something, and it's like people in like linen, and they're like you know everyone's fucking, and you're just like oh my god, this is too crazy. So yeah, that's that's what I when I think of the term erotic thriller, I think exactly of what Kevin said. So oh,
1: but but you don't you don't think of like those like that era of like Basic Instinct movies.
2: I mean that was kind of yeah. The mainstream. And I think you're right. Yeah. Like, yeah, like that kind of gave way to that more like more provocative. I think that the, the mainstream film erotic thriller was meant to be more titillating and provocative because they're like, we have real stars showing mm-hmm. you their parts now. It's not just like some lady from the casting <laughs> the casting call we sent out. Yeah. It's like Sharon Stone and all these yeah. like big deal people. And I think that really I think they they also tried to market sex in a way that was very like they thought they were doing something really strange and evocative and I'm like you don't even know the half of it and I'm a virgin and I know more than this <laughs> so it's <laughs> like like it was kind of weird to see like what they thought was like oh my god it's so daring like he took her whole top off yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean it was like you know we talked about this movie in a previous episode but body heat with Kathleen Turner Mm -hmm. and then you know you have basic instinct I think that's probably like Maybe the biggest erotic thriller that yeah. I can think of movie wise. Yeah. Although I do love Sliver. Do you remember Sliver with the? I, and I and I watched it because UB40 yes. did the song from it. So I was like into the song. But then, you know, you have all the DePaul, Brian De Palma movies and stuff. And I mean, mm-hmm. I remember Adrian Lynn. Yeah. And then Body of Evidence with Madonna and William Defoe. Oh, I mean, yeah. It was just, like a lot of that. Do
1: you remember um, Angel Heart with uh, oh, Lisa Bonet? My God. And Bill Cosby was very upset, apparently. He was
2: about- so mad. <laughs> He's like, I'm Holy. out here literally raping people, but I'm so, <laughs> so mad that excited. you showed parts of your boobs yes. on this movie. It, like, almost ended her yeah. that she yeah. did that movie, I remember. And it i maybe kind to of it did. So I mean, she sort of yeah. disappeared after that. She disappeared Absolutely. for a while, but she was she was with Lenny Kravitz having a great time <laughs> yeah. raising beautiful babies. But, yeah, it I mean, it was, that's the thing. Like, there was never really a line, and you didn't know that you crossed it Back then, until something like that happened, like where somebody was like, "Oh, this is too much. We can't not not a different world, Lisa Bonet. We can't do this." (laughs) And it was always so like arbitrary. I felt like it was just so arbitrary what qualified and who was able to even be in that world um, from an acting. And they never. And we, Millie and I, have talked about this a lot. But we appreciate that. Sorry, my cat is on my lap, and it's just like a creepy tail crossing my chest every (laughs) once in a while. Um, but he has a lot to say about erotic thrillers. Um, but there's something we talk about this all the time. How we really appreciate the modern day dongassance. Like now they're actually showing like full frontal male and and butts. It's not. It's, it's not a show if there's not a penis in it now. Thank That's right. you. Yeah. And and nor should it be. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm talking directly to you, Peacock. How dare you have cock in your name and not have one penis? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like that was also so much not, it was like so straight centered and female centered back then as well, mm-hmm. like what qualified yeah. as the erotic thriller. So I kind of nowadays, like if I'm, when I was looking at my list and kind of thinking about this question, I was like, hmm, what was the role of men back in the day in these films? Uh, because they didn't really allow them much room to be sexy. Like it was. Yeah, I was actually gonna
1: say I'm. I know about all these films, but I haven't seen most of them because in that era, I was a young, closeted gay man, and Mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of appeal Mm -hmm. for me. It's like there's a man, there's a woman. It's gonna get toxic. Like I don't (laughs)
2: know. Someone's gonna die. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Sharon Stone's gonna (laughs) flash her thing at the camera. Like I just. It's like I don't. The appeal wasn't there for me. So I've not seen most of those movies.
2: No, yeah. I'm I'm right there with you. Like it really wasn't. Once I saw one or two, I was kind of like, I get it. <laughs> like, I don't really need to dig into this this genre too much because it it really wasn't very titillating. Um, you know, I I found more more titillation in like the back of the bus, the back of the school bus. Yeah, like, there was much more raunchy shit going on. on <laughs> Who are
1: those movies geared toward? Who is the target audience for an erotic thriller?
2: I think it was like the middle-aged mom, truly. Yeah, yeah.
0: I th- and that's kind of like what I was thinking in terms of them. I mean, Stephanie has said that she believes that they have vanished and that, are they, will they make a comeback? I mean, I actually think now there is more nostalgia for erotic thrillers than ever. I don't mm-hmm. know if they're making erotic thriller films mostly because, A, they're only making certain types of films now, and they're not geared towards adults normally. I mean, it's like, that's what I think the erotic thriller was, was an adult genre, right? For adults, movies for adults. And I feel like these days, you might see, you know, an erotically charged television series, but not like a movie necessarily, because Mm -hmm. they're just not making, they're not making films for... Like that market as much as they used to in the eighties and nineties, right? So, yeah.
2: and it but and I, it used to be like the ones that were geared towards that weren't geared towards the middle aged mom were kind of like swim fan. Where I'm like, this is too young. I don't care about any of these people, or like um, like poison ivy is always going to be a killer. Yeah. But you know, the, there was never really there was always like a a very specific audience for each film, and I don't think they ever really quite. I don't think Hollywood quite knows what to do with an erotic yeah. thriller.
0: Right. But there's so much, like, out there, like, in terms of, like, there's a lot of film criticism and a lot of, like, you know, sort of, like, reexamination of these old movies because... I mean, I think it's because of us, of people our age who remember, like, going, like, remember that, like, weird, sexy, like, Sharon Stone movie, or you know, the Red Shoe Diaries. Like, what mm-hmm. was that all about? And then people d- rediscover things. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know who would be the next king. I don't know if they're even gonna make them in that way again. <laughs> Wouldn't Hard it be say.
2: great if it was somebody so unexpected? If it was like, <laughs> like the My Pillow guys? do oh, next- no! No I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: My but Pillow guy. Like,
2: like I don't know if the, I'm trying to think like who would be the next That's
1: season. the name of the movie too. Just My Pillow.
2: My pillow. And there's like a
0: dagger slicing yes. a pillow and it's you know, there's like a high heel in the background or yep. some okay. shit.
2: <laughs> a loafer, a little loafer in the background. But I do I, I do think that um that in terms of erotic thriller favorites, because I, I really try to think like, hmm, what were the ones that I love? If I can't think of who the next erotic thriller king would be. Do you remember when Bound came out with Jennifer Tilly and Gina oh, Gershon? Yeah. I did watch it, like, that, actually. And it blew people away. They're like, oh my God, it's so st-. I thought, it, and it was a beautiful movie. Like, I thought it was really well shot. And it's just, it's got so much merit in so many different ways, but that's a great um, erotic thriller for me. And I also think, I was wondering, and I want your opinion on this, guys, but... Is single white female an erotic thriller? Yes, I think so. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Yeah, Thank you. Because it's like, it's out of the ordinary. They tried to market it as like just a straight up thriller. And I'm like, but she's in love with her. Can we talk about that? (laughs) (laughs) God, even Beyonce
0: was in an erotic thriller, right? She was in, what was that movie? Was it called Obsessed? I think it was like Idris Elba and Beyonce. It came out in like... I want to say it's the 2000s, but I don't know. Oh, it came out recently. Yeah, but (laughs) I was like, like, "Wow, Beyonce even has made an erotic thriller.
2: Who knew?" I think that's that's what it's become now. It's become like a weird way station between uh, to legitimacy. Like I can be also very sexy, and you're like, "All right, I get it." But not to bring it back
1: to the my pillow guy, but I always think of jokes (laughs) a minute too late. So the 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 box the VHS box it says my pillow. And then there's, like, a (laughs) dagger in the pillow, and the tagline is, uh, the erection was stolen.
0: (laughs) 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 If somebody does not Photoshop that shit and put it in our (laughs)
2: inbox... By the end of the week, I'm going to be pissed off. If it's not there by the end of the interview, I'm going to be pissed off. And then just a little tiny Made in America logo on the bottom. (laughs) The erection was stolen. I mean, we can just end the podcast now. We are done. We did it, everyone. Thank you so much. We got there. Holy shit, that is hilarious. (laughs) <laughs> the erection was, I might not ever recover. I might not ever recover. That is the erotic thriller we need. Yes. <laughs> right now. I truly, I really have a hard time thinking of, like, who would be the next erotic thriller star from this generation. Because they're going to always try to make it, like, um, like Harry Styles. I, I, I just mm. watched Don't Worry, Darling, and I'm just like... Yeah, he's too young. It has to be, it has to be. It's so boyish. I think
1: they have to be middle-aged people.
2: Yes. There's something to it. Like, mm. I remember remember that movie Unfaithful um, with Richard Gere and Diane. Diane Lane. Lane. Yep. And I feel like that was another big deal of film that's kind of in the erotic thriller camp because they're like, oh, my God, these are actual people playing their actual age. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, let's get some. Who's, I don't know, I'm kind of in a weird grandpa sex time of my life. Like, who's a good weird <laughs> grandpa to be in a room? Thriller. i know i mean like, you, i'm gonna you, say
0: chris pine again Let, let's put chris pine in an erotic thriller yeah you know he's too just,
2: pretty he's so pretty <laughs> yeah.
1: i think it would it doesn't work with young people because part of the dynamic is a little bit of complexity of you have to be like at a place in life it like young love wouldn't work like no. someone, yeah. if, if someone's gonna go crazy uh, and in the way that that's gonna work they you have to be over 40 i
2: think i don't think it could work oh with yeah young people. Yeah. You need to have like a little a good mix of like desperation and exhaustion. Yes. <laughs> like yes. to get to the end. That's like the erotic thriller math that has to Yeah. Happen. Is is Mark Ruffalo?
0: What do you oh, what do we think of good. a Mark Ruffalo type? Yeah, I can
2: see it. I can see it. He would be very like um he does that confused face a lot like so I can kind of see like that morphing into a sex face yeah.
0: for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's also to your point, I think too, it's also, you got to have a willingness to want to be sexy, which I also think is is not a thing that young guys are really putting out there as much. Like, mm-hmm. they want to be funny and they want to be, you know, they're like hot, but they want to be funny too. Whereas I feel like Michael Douglas was like, I am doing it in this movie and I don't give yeah. a shit what you think about me. Like, I have no, I'm not trying to, you know... Diffuse it with some funny joke Or like a ha 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 thing He's like no I'm legit sexy And this is going down And (laughs) so we need somebody at that level That's not afraid You know to like show a little ass And to just like go for it You know so, so who's
2: asked do we want to see at that age right now too that's the, that's the most important question which aging actors' ass do we want yeah, to see Yeah it's got
1: to look good with that scene where it's like a wide shot and there's like so, a sheet sort of covering them but not really <laughs> like like a cheek pops out of the sheet <laughs> Who's... Like a little
2: in the crack. Yes. <laughs> like, in the crack eats a little bit of it. Listen. has? And it can't be someone like Tom Cruise who's like, I'm at the gym for 12 hours a day. Yeah. I want an actual old ass. <laughs> like yeah. actual, like I sit on this all day <laughs> when I'm trying to figure out how to Zoom with my grandkids. Like who like, is that You mean person? like J.K.
0: Simmons? Do you want to see J.K.
2: Simmons poking Perfection. out of a sheet? Yes. <laughs> yes. I want the bearded J.K. Simmons who looks like he just crawled out of a wheat field. Just like give us that ass. That's I, exactly what I'm talking about.
1: I don't really know. I, I mean, I've never really looked, but I feel like he probably has a very like perky ass. He pro- that's, I, he, that's he based is. on nothing.
0: Did he show <laughs> his ass in Oz? Did you guys see Oz when that show was out? Oh, maybe. I uh, never watched it. Oh my! Oh my god! <laughs> wild, wild. I've I. It is like uh, it's jail. It's a jailhouse mm-hmm. drama. <laughs> But it is an erotic thriller. If you if you want to really? get down to brass tacks, it's an erotic thriller for me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he was he was like that was the first time I really like noticed him, and he plays a scary dude. And I was like, yeah. they showed a lot of male nudity in that show, and I'm like, I wonder if he got naked.
2: I'm gonna have to Let's, go back and watch somebody it. Somebody will let us know. I, I bet it's already in the inbox where someone's like, yes, season two, episode four, <laughs> at the timestamp. <laughs>
0: Oh, my God. Okay, our producer just put a link. I'm afraid to look at this link. Is this... Oh, oh. It... It is... That is Oz. Oh my so God. he got naked in Oz. This is pre-farmers insurance commercial. So, well... I
2: don't know, I let's look, see. let's get a Martin Sheen. He's not too old. Like, let's get a Martin Sheen ass out there. <laughs> Martin <laughs> Sheen is pretty old. Why hasn't Morgan Freeman showed his ass ever? Talk about a career ender right when you're ready to die. It's like, I'm going out showing ass. (laughs) Morgan Freeman. (laughs) (laughs) The voice of God is in an erotic thriller. Hey, weirder things have happened. You got to hit all audiences. You don't know. Well, I could genuinely do this all day. And then by the end of it, I would be on 18 watch lists. But uh, (laughs) I think we have taken up so much of your time. And Kevin, you are just, again, a dream. I absolutely adore you. I think you should come back anytime. I will. but I want to also let people know again, like you are on tour. Yeah, it is December thirteenth when this episode is is being mm-hmm. released, and um, you're on tour, and you're also going to the UK. Like you are I really am. doing it. Are yeah. you organizing all of this yourself? Like do you have a company helping? I just want to know the nitty gritty. Uh, of- no, the
1: UK tour is through Live Nation. Cool. Um but I wow. have an I have an yeah. agent, of course, and like uh, of course, uh, we're adding. I'm gonna do probably about 50 cities in 2023. So we're Holy we're still we just started adding stuff uh, for next year. So uh, what we, we what we currently have is on my website, but stay tuned because we're adding a whole lot
2: more. Uh dot com for yes. shows and merch because your merch is very funny yeah, and thanks. really good. Really, just I, and I can't wait to see you. I'm gonna pick. I'll pick one. I'll pick a date. Millie and I will will go there together. Maybe we'll come see you in the UK. Are we that fancy? Uh, where Where are you guys? Are you in the same city? No, no. I'm in
0: Atlanta, so I can oh. actually drive to Nashville if you ever play Nashville. Well, you do Zanies, right? Isn't that the club that you? Yeah,
1: I have sort of a residency at Zanies. Um I'm oh, actually sweet. I'm actually working out my new material there. So, um,
2: oh, hell yeah, yeah, we're going, we're going. I'm in I'm in the woods. I'm in upstate New York. Okay. Um, But I'm not too far from well, I'll be in Albany and
1: Syracuse
2: in December. I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna be there. You're gonna just look in the audience and be like, oh my god, she's here again. (laughs) I thought she said she lived upstate New York. What is she doing in Pennsylvania? (laughs) If you see two women
0: completely doused in shamala hamala perfume, (laughs) then
2: you'll be like, those two. (laughs) They came. Do you do you have people coming to your shows with like head to toe, (laughs) like merch already? I love that. (laughs) I love that. You there is never. I I hate to put things in this context, but there is truly never been someone more deserving of the absolutely organic fame that you have, because I think that it's. You're just so naturally gifted, and we just, we've just had a blast. So come back anytime. We will be haunting your audiences. Everyone else should as well. Please go get tickets. Um, I've seen some of your clips, and I just I cannot get over how truly hilarious you are. It extends beyond the boundaries of internet. <laughs> Guys, go see it in real life. That's where the real magic is. Yes. Ah, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, Kevin is the greatest. Honestly, and the best. I just I always appreciate someone who can always make me laugh. It's a gift.
0: No, he's super cool, super sweet. We're very, very honored to have him. And um hopefully we got down to the uh, question.
2: I don't want to disappoint Stephanie. Stephanie, I hope we hope we did we brought it home for you because we we love your brain.
0: We do. And um as always, if you want to email us, I saw
2: gmail.com. So Are you ready to do a theme this week? I'm ready to do our theme. I'll tell them what it is, but I want you to explain it because it came from something you said. So our theme this week is They Hate Our Secret Knowledge. And that comes from an episode where Millie and I were talking about astrology and our love of astrology. And... I just loved it so much, and I think it's gonna be a fun theme so what do, what are you what are your thoughts on what you said about <laughs> the Hate our secret knowledge and how it applies to this theme?
0: Well, you know, part of the reason why I said that, first of all, I was on one. Let's just put that out there. I was on one, and you know how it is when you're on one. you just kind of say stuff and then later you're like, I forgot everything that I said. but i um I think I you know when it comes down to it, I feel like you know, part of part of what that was in reference to was just this idea of, like, you know, the people who get, like, really extra m- crazy and mean about people who like astrology. Almost like it offends them in some kind of way. And I just was like, fuck that. You know what? Like, they don't get us. They hate our secret knowledge. They hate, like, us, you know, interpreting things in a way that they don't interpret things, right? And right. anybody that's threatened by that has a little bit of an issue, in my opinion. So, Danielle, I think, came when we were doing, you know, themes and stuff. She was like, oh, I like that term. Why don't we try to make a theme out of it? And I feel like for the for the theme, I, I think we were really interested in, like, looking at movies about secrets, right? Yeah. And familial secrets and the kind of um, stuff that doesn't get talked about within families,
2: really. Exactly. Yeah, just there's something something about secret knowledge made me, th- <laughs> talk to my therapist about this one, but th- something <laughs> about secret knowledge made me think about families <laughs> and just thinking about, um, you know, how we develop that knowledge or how the things that we keep to ourselves that we don't think is is applicable to the rest of the world that we live in. So I just kind of um, instantly flashed to a couple of documentaries and things that are just really fascinating to me more than, you know, actual produced films and so i think we picked a couple of good ones but just know that um we i am not a professional true crime person i am not an amateur true crime person um i also did not make any of these movies and i don't necessarily have i'm not in the community that has a specific language or specific way of doing things we will do things the way we always do things which is non non offensively um, it's not our goal to offend Anyone, It's not our goal to try to solve anything by discussing these films. And it's also, we're just genuinely taking the information from the documentaries at face value as people who are just watching these films. And I think that that's... You know, there are people who take it a little bit further, of course, but we are just, you know, I'm a person who just watches the documentary, and if I want more information, I'll dig into it on my own, but I'm not going to make a federal case out of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, my documentary, I mean, I'm going first this week, is a, a a big, old, true crime documentary that came out a couple years ago. It has since turned into a lot of different things. I've not seen any of the other things. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it was important for me, I think especially this week, to just reiterate this idea that we are a film podcast, we're not a true crime podcast. It, I know it's hard um, when you're not discussing works of fiction because there are real people involved and there's just higher stakes with that. But like, I will be using my time this week to talk about the work, the documentary that mm-hmm. was made by Aaron Lee Carr. Uh, it's very interesting, textured, provocative. It's, it's a film, and I and yeah. I am a film programmer, so I'm going to talk about it as a film. And you know, I guarantee you guys will know more about the, the crime than I do, um, and like the other IP that was made. I mean, there was like a TV show and everything. So you know, just I just want to put you know put that out there that you know we're we're doing something a little different than maybe somebody else would. Let's just say that.
2: But yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk about these. I think these are also just. They're men's. These are just great films. So yeah, I'm excited ab- to talk about them.
0: Absolutely. And both made by women, which we which we love. Um, okay, so um I'm going first. You ready to get into it?
2: Can you tell that it's like the end of the year? We're just like we're like the tired mom who's like, just eat your peas and go to bed. Like just, just talk, talk about your fucking
0: movies. movie and let's move on. <laughs> I'll be sitting down in the middle of the mall. Just get your shopping done. Leave me the fuck alone.
2: Um, I love that. The mom sitting down in the mall energy that we're bringing right now. So, like, damn, you haven't even told us what the fucking movies are. Can you calm down? If anyone's well, you're still going listening, <laughs> Daniel's can, favorite phrase. Can that be our next t-shirt? If anyone's still listening.
0: <laughs> well... So my movie for the theme they hate our secret knowledge is a movie that was released in 2017 directed by Aaron Lee Carr and it's called Mommy Dead and Dearest.
2: People thought of us as sweetest mother daughter best people in the world
0: right off the bat. Do you know exactly where you were when you first saw this documentary? Um yeah, I was with you. <laughs> yes. We watched it together. Yep. We were at April Richardson's house in West Hollywood, California. And the only thing that I remember from that night was that we could not stop talking about it after we watched it. Um, it was huge. It was a huge. huge documentary when it came out. And I want to talk a little bit about Erin Lee Carr for a second, because, you know, she's the documentarian who made this film. And she is the daughter of David Carr, who was the legendary New York Times writer. And she's great. She's worked for Vice, and she's worked for Vox, and she has directed several documentaries for HBO, including this one. And um, I think the reason why this documentary has stayed with me for all these years is probably like a couple different things. Number one, of course, it's a story about family secrets, right? Which is the reason why I picked it for the theme. But it's also a story about a mother and a daughter, which is always going to pull me in, obviously, being that I'm a daughter. And
2: And that's something that our films have in common, for sure.
0: Absolutely. And I will say to that point, actually to two points, both the family secrets and the mother-daughter thing, I think as I've gotten older, both of these things have become a lot more important to me in terms of thinking about and talking about. I think that my relationship with my family has definitely gotten deeper as I've aged. And I think that's common, right? As mm-hmm. you get older, totally. people in your family start passing on and, and, and things get a little bit more baked in for everybody. And so I think I'm at that point of my age where that's happening. So it really has made me think a lot about my family and my relationships with my parents and my sister and aunts and uncles, but my mom especially, I think it's just always as a daughter you're, it's always just front and center. You're always going to want to you're always thinking about something like that, right? But also family secrets because every family has them. Every single family has them. Yep. And I feel like there's there's only if you if you, if they haven't been addressed at some point you age into the reality of them and they have to be addressed. In some way, whether it's like yeah productive or not, it gets, it all comes out in the wash type of thing.
2: You know what I mean? Yeah, it's either it's therapy, you're working on yourself, or you're just, you know, you're struggling to have a relationship with someone that because of a secret you haven't been able to. Like, it's just, it always manifests itself in a way that it has to, at some point, be discussed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that's what fascinates me about this particular documentary. But also, this documentary has a lot to do with illness, which I think, you know, I've talked about on previous episodes about illness. And I just think it's a, Topic that a lot of people think about, so there's just a lot going on. I think that's why um I wanted to re-watch it again for this episode.
2: Um, and something that I always that I really love about this documentary, too, is and something that I think we talked about a lot after we watched it together is that it's it's more sympathetic than I expected it to be, and not in a way that excuses the crime, but sure. in a way that also it ex- kind of sets you up to feel like, oh my God, like I understand more than I thought I would about how this crime came to be.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, after reading a couple of interviews with Erin Lee Carr, the filmmaker, I think that that was her intention. I think she wanted to show all the different complexities to the story, right? And so, basically, this documentary sort of begins in reverse. I mean, I feel like a lot of people have seen it, but if you haven't, I'll just kind of, you know, kind of give you a little bit of uh, a synopsis. But it kind of begins in reverse, Uh, You know, it's a young woman at a police station. She's being told that her mother is deceased uh, by a detective. And she's obviously very distraught and upset. But then the detective kind of starts going in a different direction with some of the questions that he's asking her. And eventually it sort of revealed that she might have had some involvement. And so as a viewer, I mean, this is happening within the first like five minutes of the film. And you're like, wait a minute, what is going on here, right? Yeah. But then, you know, at that point, the film kind of moves into the backstory, which is basically this young woman, her name is Gypsy Blanchard. Up until this point, that the film starts with, she was living with her mother. Her mother's name, Dee Dee. Uh, Gypsy had severe health issues. You know, she had leukemia, muscular dystrophy, she was in a wheelchair. And the way that the documentary unfolds is that basically she had been in and out of hospitals since she was a baby, essentially. She'd had many, many surgeries. She had a feeding tube. She was using a breathing machine and was, you know, had a developmental condition. And, you know, they're just, like, showing all of this footage from, like, home videos, but also just, like, photographs of their home. They show this picture of, like, a closet in their home, and it's just filled with medicine bottles, just, like, mm. tons and tons of med- medication. They're showing, like, medical records and lists of conditions that Gypsy had, and it's just quite extensive. It's it's just very... And you were like, this is a sick little girl. And so, as it turns out, like, her and her mother were Katrina survivors, Hurricane Katrina survivors, um, and they were relocated to Missouri, where they were built a house by one of the local charities, and... There are different people from the family that are kind of coming in to be interviewed, and one of them is Gypsy's father. And it's revealed that him and her mother, Dee were married pretty young. I mean, he said he was 17 when they were married uh, and then were divorced. And the father was was remarried to someone else and was seeing Gypsy on occasion. But the, what ends up really happening is that the film kind of lays out this idea that Dee and Gypsy were basically inseparable, right? Because... Gypsy required, like, around-the-clock care, being as ill as she was. Uh, And she wasn't in school. And, you know, they were being helped financially by neighbors and various organizations. And one thing I love about this documentary is that there is a lot of home video footage, interviews... There's a lot of paperwork. It's just, it's it's got a lot to it, which I think is really interesting. It makes the film very textured in that way. And yeah. so there's all this like home video footage of Gypsy and Dee, Dee going to their new house. They're on stage at benefit galas. They're going to Disney World. And, you know, it's just hitting home, like kind of what this situation is.
2: And she uses a um, wheelchair. Like she's, you know, she's fully dependent. Uh, fully gypsy. dependent. Gypsy's fully dependent, yeah.
0: Right. And based on the interviews with the father at the beginning of this documentary, he was still in Louisiana, where they're originally from. And it seems like he was a little kind of removed from what the actual situation was. And he was hearing a lot of information from um, Dee Dee. She had told him that she had a chromosome condition and she was going to die young. I mean, it was just like a lot of news. To hear, oh yeah!
2: Like from the beginning, that was one of the more interesting things to me is that because he doesn't come across as an unsympathetic father who was didn't want to be present and didn't love her, it's that Dee Dee really utilized the you know Gypsy's illnesses to keep him at arm's length, like you know don't talk to her too much and don't overwhelm her, and you know you can kind of really see in his experience, how he wanted desperately to be part of this kid's life, and she just wouldn't let that. And there's a reason for it, but she wouldn't let that happen, um, even though he is a Cajun Tony Hawk and <laughs> can come through any time.
0: <laughs> Gotta say, I wholeheartedly agree. Love the dad. Love him. Love the dad. Um, and like I said, in the documentary, he he's... You know, he seems like a very easygoing dude, and uh, love that accent. Love all the accents. Basically, the Louisiana accent is quite special. Oh, it's um, beautiful, yeah. So here's the thing: so we're being set up with all this information, but then right as we're being presented all this, we discover that Gypsy actually wasn't sick. Or as sick as Dee Dee ever claimed she was. She did not have cancer. She actually could walk. She had had surgeries and treatments that she didn't need. And that all of this might have been orchestrated by Dee Dee as either like a huge, decades long financial scam or because she had Munchausen by proxy or maybe even a bit of both. So, this is the secret you know, mm-hmm. of the film, is that this was something that Didi was keeping from her daughter.
2: Right? And... She didn't even tell her how old she was. Yeah. She didn't even tell her her real age.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of, um, like I said, there's a lot of interviews, a lot of text messages, evidence photos, paperwork. And there's, and there's interviews from kind of everybody, like neighbors, journalists, social workers, police... And, you know, basically, it's the lawyer, her lawyer, Gypsy's lawyer, was presenting all of this information to the father and his wife about, like, the links to which Deedee was keeping this afloat, keeping this scam afloat, right? Um, Changing doctors, providing all this kind of fake historical medical information, and you know, it was just that kind of bobbing and weaving that, like, nobody kind of knew what was really going on, and it's—it was honestly shocking to me. Like, when that part yeah. of the documentary rolls out, you're like, "Holy shit!"
2: Like, well, there, there's a moment where Michelle Dean, who's a freelance journalist and in, in who covered the story, because uh, they talked to people throughout the film who were part of the story, either by being experts or. Um, you know, neurologists and doctors, but Michelle Dean said at one point flatly that the entire system failed Gypsy Rose. Like, nobody caught anything when there was, like, there are things set up. There are guidelines set up. There are goalposts set up. There are warnings set up to prevent exactly this kind of thing. So it's a combination of Dee Dee was so good at the manipulation that she did, but also nobody caught this. Even, even doctors who said, flat out said, this could be Munchausen by proxy. They didn't do anything about it after that. It was kind of like, I did my due diligence. You can't sue me because I'm pointing this out. Yeah. It's somebody else's problem. Like, everyone failed this kid.
0: Yeah. And here's the thing. So, to me, the part that comes after, which is basically the family, the interviews with the family, I mean, some of the info that they share about Deedee was unreal to hear as a viewer. Yeah. Like, even when I rewatched it. And, like, these are people who are real as hell. They are pulling zero punches when they're talking about how bad of a person Didi was.
2: Her nephew is like, oh, she's evil. Like, straight out. Like, one of the first things he says, like, oh, she's she's a real evil lady.
0: <laughs> Listen, I love Dee's nephew. He looks like he's in <laughs> suicidal tendencies. The band Suicidal Tendencies. <laughs> and he's like, yo, she's weird. Like, weird and dark. Yes. And she possibly had mental illness, but he he was just, like, straight up, like, this lady, you know? Even uh, Rod, Gypsy's father, when he's interviewed in the documentary, he was saying that even when they were married, like, he, that she was maybe into witchcraft and was in a, like, dark... <laughs> stuff and had a pet tarantula, which I always think is a nice little detail that got tucked in there. <laughs> uh, oh my God. But for my money, Dee Dee's father and stepmom <laughs> were possibly the wildest interview in this documentary because the greatest. Like this is the deceased father. So this is Dee Dee's father and his new wife. Um you know just older folks. And <laughs> They they were telling story after story about, you know, Didi was a took after her mom, like Dee Dee's mom was a thief, according mm-hmm. to Dee Dee's father, and stole clothes at the laundromat. That was what his his wife had said, that she was stealing clothes out of other people's, you know, machines at the laundromat. But that basically Dee Dee's mother had fallen ill and that the they believed that like Didi's Dee Dee's father and his um, wife, that Dee, Dee was poisoning her and like yeah. neglecting her and uh, you know not basically not feeding her, not fe- yeah. And they said that Dee, Dee had written a bunch of bad checks and was just doing all kinds of bad things. And again, this is some the this is her father, her own father is saying this about her. The- and she
2: is the victim of like we haven't said this yet, but she's the victim of the crime. Like she ends up getting killed. So this is a posthumous. Assessment of who she was as a person. Right. And they are not holding anything back and kind of set the stage to really explain how Dee Dee's whole life was built around being manipulative and being really kind of terrible to people. So even though she's the victim of this crime, she also was the perpetrator of a lot of crimes.
0: Right. And like, I mean, they, like I said, they pull no punches, they said that when she passed, like, none of the family wanted anything to do with her, and, I mean, the I think the cl- the line that I remember the most was that they said flush her ashes down the toilet, which was crazy to hear. That like, I just sends you know, me sends over the me. edge
2: every time I hear it, where they're like, I don't want her flush her down the toilet. We need- <laughs> her own father was like, flush her down the toilet. I mean, it's
0: wild. And, you know, so, like, All of this to say, like, now you're sitting here in this documentary and you just have this portrait of this ghoulish woman, right? And I think a lot of people watching the documentary, myself included, just almost, like, couldn't believe that a mom would be capable of something like this, right? That she would be capable of of doing this to her own daughter. And when they, they do have the Munchausen by proxy expert when he's giving his sort of take on the matter. I mean, honestly, th- like, the that as a concept is so fascinating and dark to me. I mean, not knowing a ton about it before watching this, but I definitely, like, went on a research hole after I watched the film because it's just such an I mean, it's just so interesting.
2: Um, Do you want to tell people, like, bare bones what it is, or—
0: yeah, I mean, Munchausen by proxy is essentially um, somebody that believes that uh, a loved one or someone is ill and um, presents that person is sick. And yeah. whether or not it, well, the instinct is either something that's, like, maybe selfishly motivated or, you know, something else, I don't know, but it, that's the real basic, the basic tenet of it, right? yeah. But it, you know, all this to say, it made me want to know more about Dee Dee, to be honest, beyond like the yeah. obviously the wild family stories, but just knowing that this was sort of a lifelong thing. Right. But it's th- that thing too about mothers that I think what makes it shocking is that, a, you know, we have this societal belief generally that mothers are always going to protect their children. And sometimes that is not true
2: right? Yeah, there's still people. And I can tell you from personal experience, it's not always
0: true. <laughs> yeah. But that's what I think what creates a lot of the um, the uh, just the, the feeling of shock that when you watch this, right? Yeah. So, now we kicked into the second half of the film. I, I think it's the second half of the film, which is where Adult Gypsy is being interviewed by Aaron Lee Carr and she's clearly incarcerated and is basically kind of speaking her truth now on camera. And we get this timeline of Gypsy developing into a teenager. Again, not knowing how old she actually was, I think. But like, you know, she's basically getting older. And she's still with living with Dee Dee. And as most teens do, she starts to rebel against her mother. And this doesn't get too fleshed out in the documentary, but it's clear at some point that Gypsy was allowed a cell phone and the internet, Mm -hmm. right? And she was beginning to use the internet to meet people, right? And so because of this, she eventually starts running away from home to attend fan conventions. She loves Disney and princesses and she loves Tangled, the movie Tangled, right? And it was online on a Christian dating website that she met a kid named Nicholas Godejohn. And you talked about Michelle Dean, who is the, the BuzzFeed journalist. She's interviewed in this documentary, and she has probably the best quote in the film, where she said that when they met, it was like, quote, two bad narratives collided with each other. hmm And that pretty much sums it all up with these two, right? Absolutely. Now, what I think is really interesting is that he would like go to john was not interviewed himself in the documentary nor was any of his family the the footage that exists of them is like from the police interrogation videos okay mm-hmm. but in those videos his parents are being interviewed and they talk about how he has autism and asperger's and <laughs> this absolutely mind-blowing news report footage where the news reporter talks about this incident involving Nicholas Goderjohn where he was in a McDonald's and was watching porn and fondling himself for nine
2: hours. And we do have an episode called Nine American Hours because we did talk about this fact <laughs> at one point. Um, can't, still cannot get over it. Nine hours in a McDonald's jerking it and nobody did it <laughs>
0: I mean, I have thought about this every which way but loose, because I'm like, <laughs> nine hours to do anything, let alone That's that. That's a shift
2: change. That's a shift change, y'all.
0: Somebody had to have known. Like, and I'm not saying anybody wanted to put up with it or even go there, but I'm like, there's no way that that was just left alone.
2: Like, in any way. so I mean, he was watching porn. Even if he wasn't touching himself, he's watching porn for nine hours in a McDonald's. Like, any step of this is a bad time. That
0: still rocks me to my core to this day. Like, I, it's something that you and I will never be able to stop thinking about. I know it. So...
2: Okay. It's so confounding. It's so confounding to me.
0: Yeah. It, it's a part of the story. There's a l- there's a couple of moments that are tucked in that just are, what? Like, it makes you rewind yes. the documentary. You're like, did that actually happen? Like, did we just hear that in this documentary? And the,
2: the things that they set up about Nicholas or, or, you know, kind of explaining who he is and how he mm-hmm. is, um, it's this also, it's not just a confounding random fact. It kind of plays into helping set up, like, who he is and like what his mental capacity is and kind of how he views the world and it leads you to kind of understand a little bit more like looking at the text messages between him and gypsy about kind of where where his mind was when the the event happened right
0: and like this is the thing so you have these like two young people probably no relationship experience and you know the documentary notes that it just got escalated very quickly. And interestingly enough, it starts moving into this, like, BDSM realm. Mm -hmm. And this goes zero to 100 real quick, okay? And knowing what you saw in the first half of this film, you're seeing now these Facebook posts and these photographs where she's, like, role-playing for him. And it's just like, wait, what? Like, we saw her in her wheelchair at Disney World and now she's wearing a bikini and, you know, I'm just like, what is happening? Like, it's just, it was just wild to see, like, as a viewer. And, you know, they meet up at a certain point, they're so desperate to see each other, they came up with a scheme to, like, meet at the movies, and they had sex in the bathroom. And it's just like, at this point, all hell has broken loose in this documentary, okay? And it's, it's almost, like, incongruous in a way, because it's like, you see these two kids, and they're being pretty dark, and they're doing and saying these very dark things. And, I mean, if you haven't seen this documentary or have no idea what this case is about. I mean, I'll offer a spoiler alert to you right now. They lay out an entire plot to kill her mother so they can be together, essentially, right? Yeah. And, I mean, there are so many details that are tucked in to this that are just kind of brain-shattering for me in a way that was like, wow, this is truly out there. I mean, the idea that they mailed the murder weapon to themselves and put their real addresses on it? yeah. You know, there the idea that there's footage of, in this documentary of post-crime, they're in bed naked eating brownies
2: afterwards. Yeah.
0: And you're just like, I mean, these are just things that rocked me.
2: Totally. And it's, again, it's set up so, it's really set up well in the in the documentary where it's shocking to see that video of them after post-crime and you also fully understand, at least from Gypsy Rose's perspective, from Gypsy's perspective, you understand that she had no outlet to feel that she would ever be able to get free of what was happening to her. And she didn't even understand what was happening to her. She just knew that her mother was incredibly controlling um, you know, she would grab her hand during interviews and, like, squeeze her to get her to stop talking. Like her mother was an incredibly controlling person. She forced a feeding tube on her. she the medication she was giving her to, you know, kind of, quote, help with her illness was actually what was making her incredibly sick. And she couldn't think of a way to get away. So when this guy rolls into her life, who's just like, I'm into BDSM, let's kill your mom. Um, I have the, you know, the mental capacity of a 15-year-old, so that's kind of where I'm coming from, and let's just do it so we can run away together and be in this weird fantasy space. Like, it, they kind of concocted this crime in a fantasy realm and then made it come true. It's just, it's very compelling. Like, the, the documentary itself is very compelling in that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that that is kind of the uh, important thing to for me to note is that the documentary is telling a story of, an, of the crime. It's got its own cadence. It's got its own beats. Like, you know, there's a difference between watching this documentary and just, like, reading facts, right? Mm-hmm. And there's obviously parts of the documentary that are included to tell a story. And I just feel like that's why I think I like the documentary so much is because it just hit all of these different points and it didn't feel like it was really trying it was just like laying out facts, but also showing you all of these things that made you realize, oh, this is very complex. Like there's a lot of moving parts here. And so, yeah, and and, you know, interestingly enough, like, you know, you know she went to jail because she's being interviewed from a jail. And so there's a scene towards the end where her father and stepmom actually come to visit her and it's actually very emotional it makes me tear up every time because i feel like in that moment it's like her father and her and his wife are kind of giving her this like true support and encouragement and care and it's just like to have known all of that stuff had happened at the beginning and have it kind of sort of settle into this moment I think that was something that I certainly needed to see as a viewer in that way, because it just was like, everybody had failed her for so long, right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, honestly, you know, like I said, I picked this movie for the theme because I felt like it was, there's just so many secrets happening, you know, between, even between Gypsy and Dee Dee right? Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's so interesting to me to watch kind of, like, this relationship, this mother-daughter relationship, and it just really made me start thinking about the role of mothers and sort of, you know, I don't know, just just this idea of, like, m- moms, like, kind of going against that, like, classic narrative of, like, the nurturer and the, you know, the person that's just, like, the woman that knows best. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not like that all the time. And I think I think that's why this crime shocks people and this documentary shocks people. And yeah, I mean, when I when we were thinking of the theme, this was the one that I was like, this is the one that I chose.
2: Yeah, you know? it's a great it's such a great documentary. I'm so glad you picked it. And it's it's really complex and just very sad. And and, you know, it's it's sad for. All involved, and it's just it's really interesting to see like i'm just I like to have seeing all of the different layers that were that were present in this story,
0: but listen, I have never seen your film
2: oh, and, oh
0: I've been hearing about it for years, like I'm just like, I can't believe I'd never seen it. Uh, I love the filmmaker, so i'm I'm was so ecstatic when you told me that this was your movie this week, so.
2: Yeah, and my, my film is a documentary from uh, 2012, and it was directed by Sarah Pauly, and it's called Stories We Tell. I was like 13, and my sister first told me, you know, your dad's probably not your real dad. I remember we talked about how you didn't look like dad, and dad joked about it. So we have discussed Sarah Polly before briefly on the podcast— I really like and admire and respect her as a filmmaker. She was a, you know, kind of a child star in um, Canada and went into a, a filmmaking career that was impressive, and then became, you know, a director and she's and a writer and she's just really um, prolific and. And thoughtful and interesting to me as a filmmaker. So I'm always. She's one of those filmmakers where whenever I see that her name is attached to something, I know I'm going to watch it, and I'm just instantly in because she has a very unique way into storytelling that I that I love. And so it was really exciting when this film came out that she was now kind of turning the camera on her own family uh, to tell a story that I had no idea was part of her background. And the, so the interesting thing about this documentary, and just to give a brief synopsis um, of what it's about, Sarah Polly, her mom was an actress, Diane Polly was an actress, and her father was an actor, Michael Polly. And she real, she finds out and it, it, is, it is expressed in the movie "How she finds Out." But after her mother dies, she finds out. That Michael, who she has been raised with from the day she was born, might not be her biological father. So, just to kind of get into how the story, how this documentary begins, because I think something that really is interesting to me about this documentary is not just what the subject matter is, but the kind of way that it is that it unfolds and the way that she that the film is is laid out and that the documentary, how it deals with information, because there's a lot of information to be had. And something that she does right away that's really smart is one of the first things that you see her say to her subjects, which include her family, family friends, people who worked with her mother, because her mother is not here to tell her own story anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so she says to them, tell the story from beginning to end in your own words. And I just think that's such an interesting way to kind of frame this story because what you're realizing by the end of the film, especially, but like as, what you're realizing as the as the, the documentary unfolds is that the impact that this had on her family hit everyone differently. And it was astounding how many people knew. But she kind of is wrestling with this notion of everyone has their own version of the truth and everyone has their own version of the story. So built into the documentary because she's having everyone tell their own story is an explanation of how and why this documentary came to be. So she's starting out in this recording studio with her dad and Michael Polley, you might know, my fellow nerds might know as Frank from Slings and Arrows, uh, (laughs) which is a show I watch once a year. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. We'll talk about it another time. Um, But he was an actor and, you know, he was a a theater actor in Canada and that's how uh, Diane met him. And Again, like so we kind of start with her in the studio with her dad, who's older now. And, um, he has written his own memoir. So he's recording his memoir. And she's kind of directing him as he's recording his memoir. And they're really talking a lot about her mother, Diane, in the beginning. And what I love about this this documentary, which is very present in your documentary as well, there is so much footage. Like the Super 8 never stopped rolling on this family. So you're seeing Diane as this vibrant woman and they're talking about her in this way that like she was just free and wild and wonderful and fun. And she was a great mom and she was a great partner. Like there's really telling you while you're seeing it in action, like you're seeing these moments of her life, these little clips of her life that really showcased how how much she she yearned for excitement and she Mm -hmm. she built a life around excitement and art but she also but there's also another of course as as always there's another story to tell which is that when diane and michael met they were very different people she really admired him as an actor they met in this theater production and then they got together and got married and had kids But she, over time, became really frustrated and disappointed with him because she thought he was this brilliant artist, but he wasn't putting any of it to use in his real life. Like, he became an insurance salesman to support their family. Um, So she goes to Montreal, you know, she's excited, and she always wanted to go to Montreal. She felt like the art scene was more vibrant there, and it was kind of more of her place where she should be instead of in Toronto, where everyone was um, living. And their relationship is kind of on the downturn when she goes to Montreal. Michael comes to visit for a weekend. They kind of rekindle things. Very interesting also to hear in this film the way that the kids all talk about their parents' sex life. Um, oh, my
0: God. That was wild. I thought was so wild. wild.
2: Right? Because they're, like, very open people, and it wasn't lascivious in any way. It was just kind of like, you know, again, like a way to to showcase that this is the relationship we have as a family. <laughs> you know, like, we knew these things. Or... Since we've become adults, we've found out these things. So they had this, you know, this great rekindling of their relationship. So when Diane comes back from Montreal uh, and she's pregnant, uh, Michael can't figure out why this is so upsetting to her. Um, And she's considering an abortion. And, you know, to his credit, he's like, it's your body. You can do whatever you want. You know, she would have been an older mom. She was, you know, I believe 40. And... You know, she was in this, also what's interesting is she was in this play called Filomena, where life definitely imitates art. Uh, mm-hmm. It was turned into a film called Marriage Italian Style. And um it's just kind of interesting. A little interesting side note as the film develops where you're like, oh my God, life imitates art. Art imitates life. Like it's all intertwined. Mm-hmm. And um the reason <laughs> that you come to find out... Uh, Diane dies of cancer when Sarah is like ten or eleven. And Michael's really isolated, but he, you know, he he raises Sarah on his own because her siblings are all a little bit older at this point. And as it turns out, the reason that Diane was upset and wasn't sure if she wanted to give birth to Sarah and have Sarah is because she wasn't entirely sure who the father was mm. because she'd had an affair in Montreal. So, As this film is unfolding, you realize that Johnny, who is Sarah's brother, was the first person to kind of hear about this family secret because he overheard a phone call with Diane where she was talking to a friend like, I don't know if I should have this baby. It could be this other guy's baby. But it was also interesting at that moment to learn that it was always a family joke that Sarah had a different dad because she didn't look like anybody else. Yeah, And she had red hair when she was born. And so to kind of... It's a really shocking and interesting moment to realize like what had been a family joke ends up being the path to her tracing the truth of her mother's life. So, And Diane was a fascinating woman. I think that um, she, one thing I really appreciate about this film, and I think it fits in really well with They Hate Our Secret Knowledge, is that they show her as a full person. She's not just a mom. She's not just a wife. She's not just a won anything she's really creative and thoughtful and strange and fun, and they're showing all these sides of a person who's no longer with us, but doing a great job in a documentary sense of really and truly documenting a life and all the secrets that are contained within so from the first from the for the first time I saw it, I was like, this is brilliant. Like it's really brilliant because it's subtle, and the way it unfolds just showcases how great of a, of a storyteller Sarah Polly is because um, she's able to remove herself from her own narrative to get to this point where she's talking about something that um, her mother experienced. So it's, I don't know if you felt that as well, but it felt like, not like Diane was, it felt kind of like she was present or at least that she was She was more known in her, her posthumous life than she might have been in her actual life.
0: Well, and like, this is what I think is really... St- so cool about this documentary um, and like I said fresh fresh eyes like I didn't see I had just seen it you know when we were about to record um, is that I feel like it's doing this thing that a lot of documentaries just do now which is that it does this like kind of like textured um, like other like different people being interviewed about the same thing Mm -hmm. and so it feels like I mean and also I got to admit like um, it made me want a big family. Like, it was just, like, all these brothers and sisters. And I was like, (laughs) oh, gosh. Like, it wouldn't be so fun to have, like, five or six brothers and sisters. It's like, and they're all kind of talking about the same person, obviously, but in their own different ways. But it's all being edited together to, like, kind of, you know. So it just was, like, a really cool technique. And I feel like that's every documentary these days, is they do the same kind of, kind of that kind of editing structure. But, um... Yeah, it was it was really interesting. I mean, I, honestly, I loved um, Johnny. Like, I loved his interview. He, he seemed really fun. But he was like, you know, th- like, there were definitely people in her family that had, like, more of the humorous takes, and then there were other people that kind of provided a little bit more levity, which I think is really cool because it kind of shows you, like, this person is a lot of different things,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah, they definitely... That was something that I thought was a, 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 an interesting way to look at familial traits. Like, she... Was show just in the way that they were talking to each other indicated how much how they used humor to really deflect a lot and yeah. get through some of these more difficult conversations. And they're not just like they're a fun family for sure, but they're also able to, you know, when you're looking at the humor of how they're talking about this now, you're seeing in a very subtle way how they've been able to move through the pain of it. Like you right. can't get to the humor of something until you're on the other side of it. Right. Um, so I think that that was really. Really brilliant, like a brilliant move as well. Um and Diane again, like you find out as after this one bombshell is dropped, you kind of find out more about her life. Like, you know, these kids are all different ages and kind of have you know different looks and you f- find out that Diane was was married in her first marriage um she actually lost she was the first person first woman in Canada to lose custody of her children um and the reason that she lost custody of, her, of the of her two children uh, is because she had had an affair with Michael like that's how she met Michael um she was married when they met and so you know, she had the pain of that that she was carrying of, mm-hmm. you know, the pain of i've I've lost my kids. Um, you know, she did get to see them, obviously, but she did not have full custody of her kids. And also, I also am in love, and I have this, you know, more kids. um and I want my family to be whole. And so they talk a lot about that in the film, like through her friends and through, you know, Michael and her her lovers and everything that that she was someone who who did, she didn't hold back like her emotional life wasn't cloistered from the people that she loved. And so I thought that was really cool and interesting to see. So it's also I'm not going to give away the big secret of the film which is who Sarah's biological father is um because the way that that unfolds is also incredibly interesting. Yeah. Um but I will say we we do learn who her father is and it's So heartbreaking and interesting because on the one hand, you have her biological father watching her grow up in a different family with a different man, um, especially after Diane dies. And he'd always wanted to be with with her. He always wanted her to move to Montreal, bring the kids. Like he wanted her. He wanted what he could not have with her. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's this one scene. He loved her so much. And there's this one scene where there's a shot of him at her funeral. And it just breaks my heart every time I see it. And they talk about there is there is a part where they talk about his being there and what somebody said to him, um, which is just like an arrow through the heart again. Like it just it just felt like there was just nonstop loss and disappointment and sadness for him when it came to this relationship. But he always suspected or kind of knew. Uh, That he was Sarah's dad. So it's also interesting to me that, like, he didn't feel the need to tell her that. Like, again, it was astounding how many people knew about this supposed secret, but it comes to this, it comes to a head. And, like, the way that she finds out, her reaction when she finds out, the things she's discovering about herself after she finds out, it's just, it's totally fascinating to me. And I think this is. It's a really groundbreaking documentary that I don't think gets enough credit for being a groundbreaking documentary. Yeah. Um and it's very emotional and it's very um funny and it's it's just incredibly clever and yeah. it made me think a lot about you're talking about this relationship between mothers and daughters and it made me think, you know, at a, at a base level this is a movie about daughters and fathers, but it really also is about mothers and daughters because she's trying to figure out who she is by kind of revisiting who her mother was, like who her mother presented herself to be versus who she actually was. Yeah, um, And it's just very, very beautiful and just interesting. And it does it does something that I want documentaries to do for me, which is to kind of make me think about the world in a different way. And in a more gentle way or a more creative way or a more loving way. And I just think she absolutely, this must have been such a difficult project to immerse yourself in. There's one moment in particular that is, you know, heartbreaking on, on Sarah Polly's part where, you know, somebody from a newspaper calls and it's like hey we're going to break this news about your, your your dad and she's like i would love to be able to talk about this with my own family before you break the news and she's like crying and but then it's just it's again just very interesting it's an interesting way to tell your own story by asking the people in your life and the people in your family to tell your story with you and from their perspective i just thought it was brilliant
0: well yeah i do too and i have to say like i mean honestly this entire theme I'm just getting to that age where I'm just, everything involving families is just so, I don't know, just like, it it just means more to me now than ever. Like, when you're, when I was a young person, I was like, cool, yeah, everybody's weird in my family, and I'm not gonna interrogate that too much, and I, you know, like people, I like my family, and that's fine. But I don't know, as I'm getting older, I'm getting a little bit more introspective just about, everything about my family and, you know, feeling closer to them than ever. And, you know, enough time has passed where I just started to have really processed a lot of deep shit about my family. And there's this moment, like, where I realized... So basically, like, one of one of the biggest sort of um, structures of the film, right, is Sarah... So basically, her, her father, Michael, right, is in a studio and he's reading it's almost like a story and it becomes kind of a narration of the film. You find out later that it, it's him like he wrote the he wrote it. So he's basically dictating his own story, his memoir of the of everything. And then Sarah is watching him in the in the booth and is being filmed watching him so she's watching him read his own account of everything that's going on Mm -hmm. and like that to me is like was just like really weirdly emotional for me because I was like it just made me think like this is why like we need art is to help us like process emotions you know I'm like I can't imagine doing that with my father. Like if my, I can't imagine my father writing about our family, but then on top of that, watching him read it in a documentary effectively to me and having a documentary focus on my facial expressions and me processing this information. And I just was like, that's why we need art. We need art to help us like move through stuff like this.
2: You know what I mean? Yeah, it was really tender. It's a very tender experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I loved it. I loved that part because you're right, it is a story about a father and a daughter too. And I just I don't know, this to me I I am I, I regret that I didn't see it earlier, obviously. But I'm just so glad I did. I mean, it's just it was really really textured. It it was just something that I needed to watch right now just for my own sake like I said I'm I'm feeling very emo about family stuff at this point in my life. And I just, I wanted, I needed something like this. It was just like the perfect thing.
2: Oh, that makes me so happy because I love, I truly love this documentary. And I think that it's, you know, I have my own questions as I get older. You know, I definitely think that it it puts me in a mindset to think about some things with my family, but, you know, I wor- I've worked out a lot of my thoughts about my family, um, but they're ever evolving. And I think that this, it's a documentary that makes me question in a broader sense, um, can you ever really know someone? And also what does it look like or feel like to be known? Yeah. And I just find that to be like just at at its core, you know, at a very at its core from a very human perspective and connecting with the world and the world around you, I find that to be just a very interesting question. To kind of be rattling around in in my head after I've I've watched something, after I've watched this, yeah. um, and it's it's again like I think about her mom a lot. Uh, when whenever I watch this film, I think about like you know how much, how much are you willing to show people? How much do you want people to know? Because her her mom's life, you know, Diane's life was very compartmentalized. Like she talked about the affair with some of her friends. She talked about, um, you know, the parentage of, you know, Sarah's parentage with some of her friends. And, like, she kind of siloed off her life in certain ways to get through her life. So it just kind of is, again, it brings up these very interesting and vulnerable and foundational feelings for me about, like, what does it mean to be known? Um, and it's scary. Like, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm entirely comfortable with being known. So that's a question that it makes me think about as well. It's like, I don't don't have that fundamental gift of a relationship with anyone in my family or my formative years that made me feel like I wanted them to know me because I felt like I was so different and so out of place. And the only way we see it play out in adult lives is through romance. And I'm not really in that space either. (laughs) So I feel like, you know, it's interesting to think about what does it mean to be known and who gets to know you? Um, so I just think that, again, this, this film is so masterful on so many different levels. And I truly respect and admire Sarah Polly as a filmmaker. Um, she just constantly blows me away.
0: Yeah. Good pick. Good theme. We did it. We did it. We did it.
2: And we got one more episode coming up before the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Holidays are upon us, as we know. Oh, my God. I think you might know what's going on, but I don't I don't know. What are the movies next week?
2: Uh, our movies next week are Home Alone from 1990 and Three Days of the Condor from 1975.
0: Guess the theme. Guess the theme. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like there's enough context clues. Maybe you'll figure it out. But, um... Listen, if you want to email us, we're at I saw what you did, pod at gmail.com. Send us letters. We read them on bonus, but sometimes they jump to the main feed,
2: as you know. Yeah, send, send us your short questions, because uh, you never know who's going to be reading them. And we also have a P.O. box if you want to send us handwritten letters. You can find us on our social media at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and our P.O. box is listed in the link tree of our Instagram bio.
0: Absolutely. Well, Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure to do this podcast with you. You know it's the best.
2: Until next time. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgarriff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod, and you can email us at I Saw What You Did Pod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.